So we are continuing our sermon series of Ephesians, where gospel truths lead to gospel living. And we will be concluding Paul's first chapter, or his first chapter of the letter of Ephesians. And what we have learned thus far is that the first chapter is divided into two major parts. The first section, which is verses 3 to 14, is essentially one long sentence in the Greek, whereby Paul praises God for his purposes. Now, the purpose of God guarantees good for his people. For as Christians, this obviously does not mean that we will live easy and quiet lives. But God, in his providence, ensures that everything that happens to his children is essentially for our own good. For God desires us to be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And what we also observe in the first section is that God, uh, Paul praises the triune God. For praise goes to God the Father, who has chosen and who has predestined believers to adoption in Jesus Christ, which we see in Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. And of course, praise goes to His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who has accomplished the plan of redemption through His death and provides an inheritance for the believer. And of course, praise again goes to the Holy Spirit, who has sealed the believer and who provides the necessary down payment to give assurance and the security of the eternal destination to the believer. And of course, we all know that this is for the glory of the Lord. This is for the glory of God. And in the last few weeks, we have been going through Paul's prayer, where Pastor said last week, where praise turns to prayer, which is verses 15 to 23. Now, if we recall the context of the letter, we know that Paul is writing this letter from prison. And it had been about four years since he had ministered in Ephesus. But through personal reports from friends who visited him in prison, he received considerable information about the believers. And there were two particular things that displayed the genuineness of their salvation, which we read about in uh, Ephesians, is the fact that they had faith in Jesus Christ and that they had love for other Christians. And now these two inseparable marks are the marks of a true Christian, and Paul affectionately praises the Ephesians for it. Now, the remainder of the chapter is a prayer of petition, which Paul prays to God to give the believers a true understanding and true appreciation of who they are in Jesus Christ. He wanted to demonstrate to them how magnificent and how unlimited their blessings were in the Lord and Savior. He wanted to show them to see the greatness of God and that the God is the source of all that they need and all that they will ever need. For the beauty of the gospel is that they have already obtained this. Essentially, Paul was saying, all you need is Jesus Christ. And in the final section of his prayer, Paul asked God to give them the revelation and the wisdom so that the Ephesians come to a clearer understanding of the greatness of God's plan, the greatness of His power, 
and the greatness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to explore today. We're going to explore the greatness of Jesus Christ. For Pastor concluded last week's message explaining the immeasurable greatness of God's power. For in Jerusalem, on the hill of Calvary, the Jewish and the Roman leaders successfully killed Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus was buried, and he remained in the tomb for three days. However, Jesus rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God. And it is the power of God that made this possible. And as Christians, we need to know that the same power that raised Jesus Christ to the highest throne is the same power that God makes available to us today. For we have the power to live a life of victory. So let's have a look at the passage today. And I would like you to, uh, to see this amazing truth, which is the authority of Christ, which is the title of my sermon. So if we can all stand, and we'll be reading Ephesians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, from 15 to 22. Thanksgiving and prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come." And now take note, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all the things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thank you. You may be seated. So before we can understand the greatness of Jesus Christ that we observe in verses 22 to 23. I just want to expand a little bit of where we left, left off last week of God's great power. For when we examine verses 19 to 20 in close detail, we see that Paul uses four Greek synonyms to emphasize God's power. So firstly, and obviously he uses the word power that comes from the Greek word dunamis, and as Pastor explained that to us last week, it stems, uh, it is the word for dynamite. Secondly, he uses the word working, which stems from the Greek word energia, which means activity or operation. Essentially, this is the activity, the operation, or the energizing force that the Spirit gives the believer 
to live for the Lord. And thirdly, we notice that he uses the word strength, which can also be translated to dominion and power as well. And finally, we observe he uses the word might, which indicates extreme power or ability. So all four words shows the ways in which the Holy Spirit empowers the children of God. But there's one very important question that we need to ask ourselves. Does Paul pray that the power is given to the believers? Well, he doesn't pray specifically that they get given the power. He says, may their hearts be enlightened, that they will know his great power. And the power cannot be compared to anything else. The power that is immeasurable, the power that is incomparable. And the power Paul refers to is available only to the Christians, to those who believe. So Paul prays that they will be given an awareness of the power that they possess in Jesus Christ. For God's abilities and God's power are completely different compared to us, completely different from our level, right? more than any of us can ever think or imagine. And his, uh, his unimaginable power is able to bring life from death. His power can turn unbelief into faith. His power has the ability to produce good from people who once used to walk in darkness or in wickedness. As Paul explains to the Ephesians, in 1.20 to 23, God's power is able to accomplish so much in our lives because that very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in the right hand of the Father is the same power that is working in believers today. And this is so important to understand, but we'll expand a little bit on more uh, later on. And in the final four verses... Paul shows us that God's incomparable great power towards believers. For this, we can see four truths that has the potential to transform our lives. And we can have complete confidence that our God can transform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Not fully yet as we are here on earth, but fully in the life to come. So firstly, we see that God demonstrated this power when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So just stop and think about that for a moment. For Christ was beaten. He was tortured. He was bound. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was mocked, nailed to the cross, and suspended in the air to suffer and he was stabbed in the side to prove his death. But following his death, he was wrapped up in cloth and placed in a tomb. Now, there was no modern medicine to resuscitate Jesus back to life. There was no shock therapy to get his heart started again. There was no amount of herbs or ointments or spices that would bring Jesus back from the dead. Instead, it was the power of God 
that allowed Christ to step out of the tomb with a glorified, resurrected body. And this foreshadows the new bodies that we will enjoy at the final resurrection. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 45, Paul writes, So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Secondly, we observe that Paul states that God demonstrated his amazing, immeasurable power when he seated Christ at his right hand. So remember, 40 days after being raised from the dead, the resurrected Christ completed his work on earth. His training and the teaching of the disciples on earth came to an end. And as the disciples looked up into heaven, God exalted Christ to the highest place of honor in the universe, his right hand. Before the creation of the world, Christ shared in the Father's heavenly glory. But remember, Christ humbled himself as a servant when he took on flesh for the sins of mankind. But this was not the end. For after the resurrection, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And for what purpose does Christ occupy this exalted position? Well, he's our representative. He is our mediator. For Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 verses 5, he says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So through God's mighty power, Christ is the perfect mediator between God and humanity. He is there representing us as believers as he governs the entire universe. And the authority of Christ exists for service. Paul reminds us that the power of Christ blessed the Gentile readers in two particular ways. Firstly, he had taken them from death to life. And secondly, he transitioned them from being alienated from God to being included uh, uh, with God. So they became children of God. For Christ secures and he empowers believers. And now thirdly, we'll see my first point of today, which is God demonstrated his immeasurable power by putting all things under his feet, which is verse 22a. So the NLT says, God put all things under the authority of Christ. But I like the way the New American Standard Bible states. He says, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. And of course, the word subjection carries with it the connotation 
of submission or being under someone's control or in, in captivity. For Jesus' position at the right hand of God means that he has total authority over heaven and on earth. And this is in the past, the present, and of course the future. And the psalmist states in Psalm 8, verses 6, which is the psalm of David, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And this afternoon where we read, where we heard our reading from Brother Walters, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 verse 1. So this foreshadows, this Psalm 110 foreshadows Christ as God promised that his son would be that king and that he would reign forever and ever. Because in the ancient world, the, the term under his feet paints a picture of dominion over that which is under the feet, whilst the footstool is a place of disgrace. It symbolizes subjugation. For Near Eastern leaders would often humiliate their defeated enemies by stepping on their heads and their necks. And both Psalms were written by David, who was also a mighty king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, a man who knew how to subdue his enemies and defeat his enemies. But even the king of Israel was under, he was human. He was under the uh, authority of God. He was not free to make his own decision. He did not have absolute authority himself. He was put into that position by God. And R.C. Sproul comments and said, his calling was that of a vice region by which he was to manifest the justice and rule of God himself. For the king was a mediator in that he was under the law of God to the people. But sadly, as the scriptures reveal, the, the kings of the Old Testament were full of corruption and they failed to carry out their responsibilities. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, he completed his penultimate goal, which was to take up his office as Christ the King. Jesus was elevated to his coronation where he was crowned King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And today he rules in the highest political office in the universe. As the Apostles' Creed states, he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Thus, being at the right hand of God means that Christ has the authority of the fully human heir of David. For as the perfect man who was destined to rule the throne of David, which Luke chapter 132 tells us, Jesus Christ will shatter the day, the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, which we read this afternoon, Psalm 110, 5 to 6. So Christ is not only exalted above the earthly rulers, but he is seated above the heavenly powers, 
the heavenly powers that include angelic powers as well as demonic powers as well. So Paul is saying that Jesus is above all things, and I mean all things, far above everything, far above everyone else. He is above Satan and his fallen angels. He's above all the holy angels as well. He's above believers and non-believers. And there is no time limit on this. This is from now until eternity. And Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 15, he says that on the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he was exalted over all the hosts of hell. So Christians, they are a defeated enemy. But don't be fooled, for they are still in the world today. And there are battles still to be fought. Because John Piper says, But the power from God for us now in these battles is a resurrection power now. For we are to live and we are to die for the glory of Jesus Christ. And be, but because of Christ's work of redemption and his power, they are destined to be overthrown and eternally banished, which we learn in the book of Revelations, chapter 20. So what an encouraging picture for us of God's power that is granted in our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we can see the demonstration of God's immeasurable power when he put all things under Christ's feet. So let's have a look at my second point. For God demonstrated his immeasurable power by appointing Jesus as a head over all things for the church. Verses 22b to verse 23. So when Paul states he gave him as head over all things to the church, he's essentially implying the authority and the active rule of Christ over everything. And I mean over everything. If we look over nature, Christ rules over the weather, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the lightning bolts, the volcanoes, the earthquakes, global warming, floods. Christ is over all of that. Christ is over all human beings, over all of history, over disease, disability, businesses, over all healthcare, sports, inventions, media, internet, even over your iPads, right? Armies, governments, presidents, kings, chiefs, religions, universities, solar systems, stars, galaxies, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, even anything that has ever been yet invented by man. Christ is now head over all. But Christ is not only the ruler of all, but as Paul points out in particular, that God has placed Christ as head over the church. And it is for the benefit of the church. This means that Jesus governs the church. He shepherds the church. He leads the church for the benefit of the church. And of course, the church, as we know, is his body, the fullest manifestation of his work here on earth. How amazing is it to know that Christ is our ruler, 
He is our king. He is our great high priest. And not only is Christ head over everything and everyone, he is our brother. He is our friend. He is our mediator before God the Father in heaven. His power towards us is for our benefit. And the writer of Hebrew reminds us in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15, he tells us, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. But notice that Paul's description of the church as the body of Christ is not just a metaphorical image. It goes so much deeper than that. For Paul states in verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now this sounds like quite a mouthful, but let me try to see if I can explain it to you. You see, Christ is not only the head of the church, but its fullness as well. So this means that Christ has a unique and an intimate relationship with the believers of the church. Brothers and sisters, He loves us. His power will be used on our behalf. Thus, He's not, complete, he's not only completely over us, but He is completely in us. He, he fills the church and He fills us with His presence. Christ is our supreme Lord. He is our supreme power. And because as saints we are united with Christ, His work is also applied to us. And this is why Paul will later say in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, 5 to 6, which we will learn shortly, he says that God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if we are members of His body, we are fully identified with the work of Christ as well. But one particular point that I would like to make about the final verse, which states the fullness of Him who fills all in all, is a concept that may be familiar to uh, the women of the church that have been studying uh, the book Nancy Guthrie even better than Eden. And this concept is this. For as we explore or examine the pages of the Bible from Genesis through Revelations, we will see and find that God desires to be present with His children, with His people. Because in the book of Genesis, we witness that God was present in the Garden of Eden. For God was present with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden. He walked with them in the Garden. And if we look at the book of Exodus... We witness the presence of God amongst the Israelites where we find God rescuing the Israelites from slavery. He was present with them when He spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. God dined with His people. And whilst they were in the desert, He commanded Moses to build him a sanctuary in the form of a tabernacle or a tent in which he would dwell amongst the Israelites. 
For remember, the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud was there by day, and the fire by night, which remained on the tabernacle. And of course, in, in the book of Chronicles, we find again the presence of God as David purchased a land on which the temple was built. But it was Solomon who built the house of God. And again, fire came down from heaven, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Thus God filled the temple with his presence. And it is in the New Testament where we see that God dwelt amongst his people in the form of Jesus Christ. For Jesus was human in every sense of the word. He experienced life with the disciples and with those around him. He grew up. He experienced much hunger, fatigue, sadness. And he dined with his disciples as he broke bread with them. And remember, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 23, the Bible tells us that Jesus was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, John chapter 1, verses 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we witness the glory of the Lord filling the skies at the birth of Jesus. For remember our studies in Luke chapter 9, verses 2, Luke writes, For when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And we witness the Spirit of God descending on Jesus at his baptism. And we witness the glory of the Lord at, the, at his transfiguration. And of course, following the ascension of Jesus, God dwelt amongst his people in and through the Holy Spirit. For at Pentecost, there was a mighty wind that filled the house where the disciples were gathered, and tongues of fire appeared and rested on them as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And thus, the Spirit dwells inside believers individually and collectively as a church today. For the Apostle Peter also reminds us that the church is, built, is being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. And finally, in the book of Revelations, we find that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will radiate the glory of God. There will be no more temple in the city because the entire city will be the dwelling place for God, radiating the Lamb of, or the light of the Lamb. Thus, believers from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people, and every nation will have been made priests to reign on the earth. However, Christ, we know, is incomplete until the church, which is his body, is complete. Thus, Jesus Christ fills all in all, giving his fullness to the believers. And John Calvin once commented and said, This is the highest honor of the church, that until he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure incomplete. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are in his presence does he possess all his parts, nor does he wish to be regarded as complete. Christ's work will be complete when he returns to earth again. 
when he finally consummates his kingdom. But now let's provide some application for this today, right? So what does this all mean for us? How does the fact that God demonstrated his immeasurable power by raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his right hand, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us today when God placed everything under his feet and gave him the authority over all things for the sake of the church? Because perhaps you are sitting here today and you don't really feel the power, do you? You're feeling maybe a bit fatigued, maybe experienced much frustration or adversity. Maybe you're facing a trial or some difficulty and you can't seem to find a solution. And maybe you're asking, well, how does this impact my life here in Abu Dhabi today? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. So let's first of all address the believer. The first thing I would like to point you to is that this petition from Paul is that we might understand how secure we are in Christ and how rock solid our hope is in our internal inheritance. For the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is directed to us today. And this is the only power a Christian will ever need. And therefore it would be foolish to ask God for more power. For one doesn't need to experience some supernatural, some mystical experience, or to ask God for another blessing, or to ask God for more grace. For when we are saved, we receive all of God's power. We receive all of His grace. And this is important to understand, for we do not ask to receive more power to endure suffering. We do not need to ask for more power to be a witness for Jesus Christ. We do not need to ask God for more power to do, to do His will here on earth. Remember, just before the ascension, Jesus assured His disciples in Acts chapter 1, verses 8. He says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this is the same power that every believer receives from the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation. For Paul was able to complete his work because of the strength that he received from the Lord. For later on in Ephesians, we'll learn in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20, Paul states, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So to ask God for more power is really an insult to His gracious love towards us, for He has already provided us everything that we will ever need. Secondly, we do need to be aware of the, of the demonic forces that operate in the world today. Remember, Ephesus was a hotbed of occult arts and of strategies of placing and manipulating invisible spiritual powers. And of course, brothers and sisters, it is the same for us today. For Paul tells us that all are in subjection to Jesus Christ. For Jesus is above all. He is above Satan and his demons. But please do not be unaware. 
for, your, for the eyes of your heart need to be enlightened, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians. We know that Satan and his demons are real. We know that they hate us. We know that they hate our faith. We know that they hate our worship. They hate our marriages. They hate our children. They hate our ministry. But Paul's prayer can be an answer in your life that you will know the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe. Then we need to wake up to this demonic battle that fights for your soul every day, that fights for your marriage every day, that fights for your ministry, for your children every day. But praise be to God, for sin was defeated at the cross, but we still need to battle against sin today. Satan was defeated at the cross, but yet Satan remains to be fought today. And for this fight, we need to have the power of God directed towards us. We need to believe in the resurrection power now, for we are to live and we are to die for the glory of Christ. Thirdly, we need to remember that God's power is best displayed through our weakness, right? Remember, Paul did not pray for them to be given power. For why? Well, let's face it. Power that comes from ourselves leads to success. Success leads to confidence. Confidence leads to pride. Pride then leads to a fall. When we begin to believe that lie that we are blessed because we are so much smarter than somebody else, or we're so much stronger than somebody else, or we have more skill than somebody else, then we have completely missed the kind of conditions in which God operates or demonstrates His power. And I love what John Piper states. He says, Hard as it is to endure it, the most fertile soil for demonstrating God's work in our lives is the thick sod of adversity. Let me just repeat that. Hard as it is to endure the most fertile soil for demonstrating God's work in our lives is the thick sod of adversity. And we know that Paul himself experienced a thorn in the flesh where a condition that plagued him and weakened him physically. Yet it was this very condition that forced Paul to lean on the power of God. And as a result, what happened? The apostle boasted more about his weaknesses, knowing that through his cracked and his broken body, that the bright light of God's glory would be able to shine through it. So to connect to God's power, we must admit our weaknesses. We must admit our brokenness. Only then is his power able to freely flow through us. For Charles Spurgeon said once, he said, Dear brothers and sisters, go home and never ask the Lord to make you strong in yourselves. Never ask him to make you anybody or anything, but be content to be nothing and nobody. Next, ask that his power may have room in you and that all those who come near you may see what God can do by nothings and nobodies. Live with this desire to glorify God. 
And finally, for the non-believers sitting here today, and what we learn is that nothing is too difficult for God. For God has the power to give a person the power to change. For God gave the power for Paul to change. For God gave me the power to change as well. For just ask my wife. She suffered for 25 years, but God gave me the power to change. He transformed my heart. He transformed my marriage. For remember, the greatest evidence of power is change. For power produces results. And John Piper states that we know something has energy, it has vitality and life when we see movement, when we see growth, and when we see development. And when we see the fruit of the Spirit manifested in our lives, we know that God is at work. For God's power has the capacity to work inside people's hearts. He has the capability to change us. So why not tap into this power? Come to the foot of the cross. Repent of your sin. Respond to the gospel by believing that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. Experience the wonderful power that is offered freely to us through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the only power that you will ever need. It is the only power New Life Church will ever need in order to transform the community around us. So we pray that God will give us much wisdom, that He will give us the revelation, that He will enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may be able to witness His immeasurable power in our lives today and that we will know the greatness of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So may God bless us. May He bless New Life Church. So let's pray. Father God, we just want to thank you for you are an awesome and mighty God. Father God, you have the power to transform lives. You have the power and dominion over everything and everyone, Lord. So Father, we pray that we may know this truth, that we may live this truth, Lord, so that we can transform other people, Lord. But it's not coming from our lives, Lord. The power does not come from us, Father. The power is supplied by you, Lord. And Father, we lift this all for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.